Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, I'm Eric Skwarzynski. I'm the host of the Preach Boys podcast, and I wanted to share some information that broke today. I'm sure many of you already saw it, but I wanted to go ahead and record a quick episode about it and give some details for people who are in situations like this. Uh, there was a arrest made in Florida of Nathan Rager. Nathan has become sort of a uh, notorious or infamous name within the IFB world. Uh, he runs a very small church, but is extremely outlandish on Twitter, makes very uh, wild statements from the pulpit that have gained him a lot of popularity all over the internet, uh, especially over on Twitter. Uh, his clips have been featured on the channel IFB uh, Sermon Clips. Uh, he has made an appearance on the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast, which was one of their uh, most downloaded episodes, I believe. And so Nathan has made quite a name for himself within Independent Baptist world. And uh, he was arrested on June, or I'm sorry, July 19th of 2021. Uh, you can see his mugshot here up in the corner. And it said on the uh, original arrest thing that I saw, it said he was arrested for domestic assault. Now, granted, domestic assault is a very, very broad term. This is specifically what it's described as according to the Florida statutes where he resides. So a assault is defined as an internet or as an intentional unlawful threat by word or act to do violence to the person of another coupled with an apparent ability to do so and doing some act which creates a well-founded fear in such other person that such violence is imminent. Whoever commits an assault shall be guilty of a misdemeanor of the second degree punishable as provided in section 775.082 or section 775.083. So that is how they define an assault in Florida but the public police report kind of gives us clarity as to what exactly happened. So in the report, it says that the victim stated to the officer that following a verbal argument with the defendant, the defendant began running towards them and attempted to grab them while carrying the child they have in common. The victim screamed for help while in the stairwell of the apartment complex they reside in and were cornered by the defendant. 
While being cornered by the defendant and unable to move and holding their two-year-old child, the victim believed the defendant was going to attack them, creating a well-founded fear. The incident was observed by an independent witness who contacted 911, and their statements were consistent with the victim's. In a non-custodial interview with the defendant, the defendant stated that they were at the location to pick up their child as part of a shared custody agreement. After taking custody of the child, a verbal argument occurred, and the victim began yelling for help in order to get them in trouble with the law. The victim and defendant have been married for around six years and are currently going through the separation process and have a child in common. Due to the victim and independent witness statements being consistent and the victim stating a well-founded fear was established, the defendant was going to cause physical harm, probable cause for domestic assault was established. The defendant was transported to the District 1 headquarters and handed over to G4S Transport Services without incident. Uh, Nathan, after I post this information over on Twitter, Nathan made a statement that said, I asked for prayers for my wife who struggles with mental health, also for my sabbatical from public ministry to heal my family. We ask all professing Christians to bind their tongues and keyboards and give us space to heal. Failure to do so will result in legal action, in future legal action, sorry. And so when we're looking at this story, we've got a situation where Um, Obviously, there was a witness. There was two witnesses in this exact case, which is rare in many of these situations. So that's good. Um, We have two witnesses to the situation. Uh, Nathan made no statement about this. Uh, Apparently, they've been going through a separation process for some time, which is startling to me since he's an IFB pastor, and that's not okay um, for independent Baptist pastors uh, in their belief system to be divorced or going through a divorce. Um, And... He posted a sermon to his church Facebook account, which is now inactive, uh, 20 hours ago. And so uh, when you read his statement where he says to uh, buy in the tongues, keyboards, give a space to heal, and uh, he's taking a sabbatical from public ministry, his wife is having mental health issues, which is a very common tactic used in a lot of these cases where the woman's mental health is brought up or the victim's mental health is brought up. Um. He didn't feel prompted to make this statement until today, the 29th. The arrest happened on July 19th. So over the last 10 days, there's been no need for a statement, no concern for wife's mental health, uh, no uh, no stepping down from ministry, no taking a sabbatical to heal the family. It was literally in the moments after uh, I posted the information about this happening that he felt prompted to make a statement and step down from his ministry to quote, heal his family. And so all I want to say about the situation is um, if you are in a situation of domestic violence, we look at a case like this, we look at the situation that this person's in. uh, If you find yourself in a situation similar to this, I have a resource in the show notes of this episode. It is a blog post uh, that lists out what you can do. If you find yourself in one of these impossible situations, you're going to hear a snippet from one of my interviews with a a uh, former law enforcement officer, actually two uh, former law enforcement officers, one active military, uh, explaining step-by-step how you can uh, move through and navigate a situation like this. I'll link to the audio version uh, for the YouTube watchers as well. Um, but this is a really sad situation. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of people who feel the need to make jokes based on uh, some of the things Rager said in the past, some of the outlandish statements he's made. But remember that there are uh, victims involved in this situation. This is a scary situation for specific individuals. And so really make sure uh, to just handle this with uh, some sense of delicacy. And every every 
every single topic that's mentioned on the show, uh, when there are those who have been hurt in these situations, um, refrain from making jokes. It's just not the platform uh, to be doing that. Obviously, if something you know silly or outlandish is said from a pulpit, that's one thing. But in a case like this, um, our concern should first and foremost be with uh, with the alleged victims. It should be with people who are you know who are hurting um, and hurt by these situations. So. Uh, I wanted to share that information. Again, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, be sure to check the link in the comments to uh, get access to a resource that will help you in these cases. Uh, If you find yourself in a position of domestic abuse, and if you're listening to the podcast, I'm going to play a clip right now with Zach and Heather Knight, who are uh, part of the nonprofit Surviving to Thriving. You can find out more about them by visiting tothriving.org. Uh, that's T-O, thriving.org, and you can find out some more about their organization. But uh, we're going to go ahead and play that clip right now for the podcast listeners, for YouTube. I'll catch you guys on the next episode. A lot of people, when they are approached with someone who's been abused, you know, sometimes the things that they think of to say or the actions they take are not helpful or useful. I'm curious, and I struggle with this all the time doing this show, is that sometimes when someone tells you and gets vulnerable and shares something so traumatic that happened to them, um, it can be difficult to know what to say, how to be helpful. Um, can you give a couple examples of what would be helpful if someone comes to you and tells you about a traumatic experience? Like what should the response of the listener be, um, in a scenario like that? So I think on a podcast show, it's a little different, um, because they are coming to share their story. You can ask questions that may sound like victim shaming. So a lot of the questions that um, I ask are, why didn't you leave? And in a personal context, if somebody comes to you and they are in an abusive relationship and you're asking them, why don't, why aren't you leaving? Why don't you leave? That is victim shaming in and of itself. And it's making it about the victim and not the abuser. And it's saying like, you know, this is your fault. Why aren't you leaving? You need to do something about it when that's not you know, that's not the right question to ask. And it sucks because a lot of people are just trying to help. Um, and they don't realize that it can be very victim shaming, but in a podcast sense, everybody, you know, like that's the main question is why didn't you leave? What can we give? What information can we give to other women in this situation or in your sense on your podcast, other people that are in the movement, you know, information on why they may not leave. So I think those are two different um, scenarios, but especially like a personal one-on-one contact, it would be, is there anything that I can do to help you? Is there anything that you need from me? What are you going through? What, you know, just giving that person time to vent and talk uh, because that person is not going to leave that situation until they're ready to, and they're not going to listen to any advice that you give them until they're ready to hear it. And which is unfortunate because, you know, you want to get them out of that situation, but the statistics are that, you know, people leave seven to eight times before they truly leave a situation. Mm-hmm. Many times you just want to give whatever you can instead of asking them what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing right. and just give yourself as a resource. And I think a big part of that, she kind of hit the nail on the head is you don't want to point the finger at the victim. You know, a lot of what we're pushing with our nonprofit and a series we're starting on her podcast is how do we treat the problem? And the problem is not the victim, right? That's the symptom of domestic violence. The problem is the male and the male mindset, or if there is a male that is being abused, the female mindset that drives them to that violence. 
So when you're structuring these questions and structuring this conversation, definitely being very supportive, thanking them for sharing, I think is very huge because that's very difficult for somebody to share. Um, but also realizing that, you know, the, the blame needs to be put on the problem. What's the problem? Right. Um, and not the victim and, you know, why didn't you leave, but more looking at why is he, what's triggering him so we can avoid it until you're ready to leave. When someone comes to you and shares one-on-one, it's not the time to ask, well, why didn't you do this or why not? But I think it is helpful to understand the mindset of someone who is being abused. And so one of the things that's come up on the show just indirectly is a lot of people tend not to leave abusive situations because they feel like if they don't successfully leave, it's going to make the abuse much worse. Um, and this has come up over and over again on the show. You know, I, I felt like I couldn't leave because my husband was always watching me. I felt like I couldn't leave because I was a minor. So I want to hit some of those questions and just see from a law enforcement angle what the what the safest option is in a couple different scenarios. So um, one of the first things that I was curious about is how can a spouse safely exit an abusive home where they are being monitored all the time, whether by their abuser or by people who are assisting the abuser and keeping tabs on you, like in church context, sometimes people, well-meaning church people can be a liability to you when you're trying to get away from uh, abusive husbands. So what's the safest way if, if a spouse is being abused, what's the safest way to make that exit? So the first step would be to find somebody that you trust to be able to talk about that situation or to know that you have somewhere to go, at least for that first night. If at all possible, being able to do that research of finding that emergency shelter or knowing where your police station is. Um, If you walk into any police department and you say, I need to find a domestic violence shelter and you're over the age of 18, They will direct you in the right location and tell you where to go. The second thing that I would do is make a a go bag, put in there all of your essentials. If you have a passport, your passport, credit cards, if you have Mm -hmm. them, um, chances are if you're being um, directly monitored and all of that, you probably won't have cash. Um, So if you you are getting an allowance uh, from your spouse and they, you know, aren't really checking exactly how much money you're spending. If you can take a dollar each time and build up 40 to $50, um, that's enough, at least for the first night to get you somewhere to get you out. Um, and a pair, you know, some clothes that would really be it. Uh, when you get to the a shelter, they have deodorant, they have shampoo, they have, you know, toothbrushes and toothpaste and all of that essential thing, all the essential things that you need. So I would not um, worry about that and worry about putting those types of things in your go bag. I would really focus on passport identification, clothes and money if you have it. Um, If you don't have a way to start getting money, um, just leave. And then at, you know, at at some point, you'll be able to build that fund up. And then um, a lot of times when you get to the shelters or get to the police department, they have more resources there. Chances are, you know, your husband's maybe give it like 10, 15 minutes after they've left the house and I would leave right then and there and not turn back. And I think a big thing that she's alluding to is preparation, right? The, the six, seven, eight times that people leave and come back, there's always a form of punishment involved and it escalates the situation, right? And one thing to be very, uh, very attuned to is it never gets better. You know, I think a lot of the victim mindset is, oh, he was angry this one time. 
it'll get better. Or he only did it the one time. It'll never happen again. Yet there's always, a, always ends up being something that makes it worse. Right. So if you leave and come back, it's going to be worse. So she's talking about things that help the individual get prepared. And if you can help, if you can facilitate that preparation, if you're a friend, somebody listening that you know of that is, that has, is going through the situation, helping them be prepared for that and being that safe place, I think is really key. And then finding resources like surviving and thriving, where we help that help facilitate that game plan. So you're not leaving six or seven or eight times you're leaving and you're gone. And that way you don't have um, part of the issue is you kind of, if you're not ready, you might, fall on your face for lack of a better term where you leave and have no resources. So you have to go back or you go into another similar situation. And that's really what we want to avoid is going somewhere where you're sustainable and have that plan in place for you to succeed. You alluded to, you know, if you're someone who's over the age of 18, you can go to a station, let them know. So obviously the path probably looks different for a minor because you obviously are under a little bit more control, um, under your parents. Um, can you talk about what options minors have and maybe hitting it from both angles? Like if you're a parent who has minors in the home and you want to get them out too, or if you're just a minor and maybe both parents are abusive or one's enabling the abuse, the other's abusive. Can you just talk about kind of some of the situations with kids that, you know, you've encountered where they've been able to safely exit? If you're leaving with children, take them with you. Obviously, do not leave them in the home um, because the abuser can use that as collateral um, and or start abusing your kids if they're not already doing that. So 100% take them with you. And most emergency shelters allow kids with them. And I would say that first night, don't worry about legal ramifications because domestic abuse has become such a prevalent thing that a police officer is not going to send you back to your household to continue being abused. They will allow you to stay separated until proceedings happen. And what will happen is when you get to the shelter, they'll call defects and they will, you know, do an evaluation and then, um, they'll set up, um, supervised visitations and all of that with, um, with kids and the, uh, abuser because they still do have parental rights. Um, and until the proceedings finish, they have all of those parental rights, but you can limit that into supervised um, visits or, you know, visitation and, and stuff like that. For minors who are wanting to leave an abusive situation, I think that I would just go straight to the police department and, you know, say that you need to talk to somebody about um, abuse that's going on in the home. I can't speak for the entire nation, but I know the police department that we worked at um, was leading um, Georgia, you know, the county that we were in was leading Georgia in sex crimes, uh, solving and, and keeping it off the streets, not, you know, perpetuating it, but <laughs> <Not> sex <leading>. <laughs> crimes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, children abuse and domestic violence. Uh, we had a lot of, um, uh, groundbreaking uh, laws that came in um, from our county. And so we took it very seriously when a kid came and uh, made an allegation. Um, And if you're in a county that maybe is not as progressive, I would just stand your ground, really say like, I don't want to go back, you know, over and over again. Do not, you know, let them 
convince you to go back into the home until, you know, defects comes out or somebody comes and does an evaluation at your house. Defects is Department of Family and Child Services. Is that the same as CPS or is it Yeah, okay. Child Protective. Yes, okay. we call it is defects here. Yeah, it's um, usually state by state, but every state oh, okay. has some form of that. Yeah. Some form of protection for for kids. Yeah. I would just be very adamant about it because it it can, you know, if your parents are really good at manipulation, they may be able to, you know, try to convince police officers that nothing needs to be done. But I would continue to, you know, if this is really, you want to leave and you want to get out, make that stand. Don't allow your parents to, manipulate the police officers, you know, come in with, if you can, if you have evidence, that would be amazing, you know, come in with documentation, even keeping a journal, um, you know, for months, you know, just try to hide it from your parents and um, write everything that happens, a daily journal, because at least that's something that you can bring to the police and say, I've been writing everything that's happened to me for the last three months. Can you please do something about it? Um, And I think that DFACS or CPS is under such a light right now that they're trying not to let people fall through the cracks. I think it was the very first episode he mentioned he, because I asked, I asked the question, I said, did you consider as a minor going to the police? And he was, when you are a minor, like even when you're 17, 18, you think you look at your, your teacher's parents, pastor as like the ultimate authorities in your life. And he just was like, I thought the police would come out. And then my, my pastor would say, oh, there's nothing going on. And then they would leave. And the idea of them actually investigating further was like, he didn't even think that was a reality. So I think that just knowing that there is an an ability to speak out without being, you know, the police aren't there to question you to make sure that, you know, like they're not going to treat you like the suspect. Essentially, when you come out, they're going to actually look into it. And I think what you brought up is important, too. If the police aren't listening to you, you have other agencies that are there to double check the police doing a thorough investigation. So that's really helpful. Um, Zach, did you have something you wanted to add into that? Yeah, I was just going to say times have changed for sure. Um, I don't know how old or how long ago your first guest like 2004, 2003, somewhere in there. And there's a much bigger emphasis on it now, especially human trafficking and that aspect of things. But um, the thing I wanted to add was there beyond law enforcement, because I know for a lot of kids, it can be scary to go to the police department or you might not have the ability to get to the police department. Um, But there are mandated reporters, people that you can go to that are mandated by law to report domestic violence of some sort. So that could include sexual abuse, domestic abuse, anything along those lines. And I think knowing who those people are, like the teacher at school, mandated reporter, right? They have to report that. And if they don't, there's a bigger legal issue attached to that. Um, So I think that's also another avenue to definitely express to the younger crowd to realize you don't have to talk to the cops, but there are people within that you can speak to that have to then report it and facilitate you getting to the police. I do want to add in one thing to that just specific. And I know, I know you guys aren't specifically involved in um, kind of this world specifically of independent Baptist churches, but I do want to just throw in, and this might be partially a question, but uh, one of the issues that I see over and over again is those mandatory reporters don't often report um, when you're working with like the organizational kind of 
protection of abusers. Um, like for example, there's a, there's a church in, um, in, uh, I want to say Temecula, um, but in that area and they've had about four or five sexual abuse cases involving church staff and, um, members of the church and in their, um, in their policy, their written policy for reporting abuse, um, they actually say that the case should not be reported to authorized law enforcement officer without first discussing the case with the pastor, deacon, staff member, or female reporter. Um, so there's and there's other churches like that that have had where I've seen people scan documents and send them to me where they encourage you not to go to law enforcement. For someone who's in a situation like that, where should what's the best route? Is it just calling into the station? Is it you know, because I know even then it's a concern of like if a cop car pulls up outside your house and you've got abusive parents or outside your church and it's abusive ministry person, people can get on edge really quick. So is that the best route or is there any other way to to get around that? I think there are two things to look at in that. One is, yes, going straight to the police would be a better when you're in that type of organizational protection, right? Um, Another thing to look at is the credentialing of the school and the credentialing of the teacher. You know, there, there are certain standards legally. And again, state to state could be very different in Georgia. I'm speaking on the Georgia sense, but a lot of States mirror each other in this fashion where you can lose a teacher, can lose the ability to teach a pastor can lose the ability to be a pastor. Um, if it's brought to the authorities in the proper manner, right? So that kind of leaves the onus on a motivated parent or somebody like yourself where you're getting this message out there. So when that information comes to you, you know, facilitating that to the proper authorities in that area to start that paper trail, because that's the big thing, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. None of this is going to change overnight, right? But if you can start that movement toward getting those people fired, the organization shut down, legally speaking, there are avenues to do that, that, you know, you don't have to necessarily go to court yourself and hire an attorney and fight that battle. It's you send it to the authorities that say, hey, they are not mandatorily or they're not reporting this mandated reporting status. This needs to be taken care of and charges can be taken on them. And there's just another avenue of removing them from that situation get to that point, like that starting point, if you're not comfortable going to the police and you don't know how to, because, you know, CPS and defects, they can always, you know, they can be very difficult to get a hold of because they are very swamped, especially, you know, California and um, those areas um, just because population Uh, find a mandated reporter. That's not within that movement. If you have a primary care doctor, if you go into the ER, if you go to the hospital, um, you know, there are mandated reporters all across the nation. Um, and it is whether they know you or they don't know you, if they suspect that what you're saying is true, they're, they're mandated to report. And, um, if you find that person that's not in that movement, that will do that you'd say that too, they'll report it because they don't want to lose their license because they're not protected by an organization. They're not protected by anybody or anything. They want to protect themselves. So they will report. In a case where someone does report, how quickly can a protection order be put in place for maybe a spouse, a spouse with children? Like, is it something where 
you know, they're going to have to wait three weeks where a spouse could show up at any time and there not be any protection for them. Like how, how quickly is that usually put in place? So you can get a TPO, an emergency TPO um, the and first day. At- just to specify, TPO is a temporary protection order. Right. So it's not going to be a long term, but just to like specify that definition. How short term are we talking? Like a week, a two 30, weeks? It's a 30 day per, okay. or no, sorry, from 30 days to a year. Okay. And then at a year you can renew it and um, it's, it doesn't ever, it expires, but it's not like it's one and done. You can always renew it. Um, okay. And so you can go into a judge and they can order it that, that day. So like if you go to the court system on a Monday at 8am, you'll get it whenever you leave court. So for TPOs, here's, here's the thing that needs to be realized. A TPO is a piece of paper, right? It's great to have, but it's not going to stop anything from happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I worked more cases of aggravated stalking, which is what it's called here in Georgia. When somebody violates a TPO, um, I've worked more cases of aggravated stalking than I did of actual TPOs I facilitated taking out. Right. So what you need to realize is it, it you can get it that day, same day, usually 24 hour turnaround, depending on how quick the sheriff's department can find the individual. they have to be served, right? So it's not in effect until they're served. So if they can't find them for two weeks, well, that's two weeks. But we also have to realize it doesn't create that protective bubble. So if you're at a friend's house, he can still show up and that piece of paper is not going to stop him if he's motivated to harm you still. Right. So I think that's a huge huge thing to realize. It's good to have definitely one step in the process, but realize it's not what's going to protect you long-term from actually receiving more violence. Right. And it's also a good step to have because like he said, with aggravated stalking, you can't get that aggravated stalking charge without a TPO or or PPO, which is a permanent protective order. Um, And that is what sends them to jail. So essentially, and we, um, we, we actually had a a temporary protective order issued against somebody um, this year and kind of understood a little bit more about the process. And essentially it seems like it just gives if something else happens, it puts more legal ammunition against that person than it does. I mean, obviously like there's nothing ultimately no, no verdict from anybody is going to protect you more because ultimately the person's going to do what they're going to do. That That's they're breaking the law in the first place anyway. Um, but it seems like the main purpose is that it gives you extra ammo to say, look, they had this protection in place. They violated that as well. So they're obviously, you know, just, putting aside all the rules that are being put on them. Um, I had a guest and they actually asked this question specifically for this episode. Um, and they shared, um, they shared on their interview with me about a situation like this. So there was a protective order placed. Um, this is a very specific scenario placed against um, an abusive father to their kids and uh, their kids were in a Christian school and the Christian school essentially didn't choose to follow the protective order and allowed the dad to come pick up the kids and essentially told her like, we're not following some random order. We're following God's law kind of thing is what they were. Their argument was. Um, So in religious schools, I know public schools are definitely have a lot more clear cut guidelines and things, but in a religious institution, are they required to abide by protective orders and what recourse does a victim have if a school is ignoring or breaking that, that order? So the, we have this great thing in America that is called separation of church and state. And it's for that exact reason. Um, it 
if there it's is supposed a, to be for that. Exact well, reason, yes. <laughs> and yeah. so if you have a, uh, you know, the, the law trumps, um, in most cases trumps, um, religious things, especially when protecting a victim. Um, right. You know, it, religion can trump things in um, having rights against, you know, vaccination or free speech and things like that. But when you're abused and you, you know, are um, trying to protect yourself, um, religion does not play a part in what the law can or cannot do. If somebody has a protective order against somebody else, just because you're in a church doesn't mean that they can come and abuse right. you right the the church walls do not null and void that tpo um and neither does a christian school so um right. the repercussions for the people that are violating that are still very real and still the same as if they did it in a grocery store and mm -hmm. um i think the victim has a lot of ammo especially because it's you know it's public knowledge it's not like they came to somebody's house and it's harder to prove that they were there or not there it's you know especially if the church or the school is saying oh yeah we definitely let them come and take right. his kids you know right. if you're if you're admitting to it then for sure you have you know that's the evidence that the law enforcement needs and right. they can execute whatever they want to after that and a big piece of that Again, I always kind of break things into two, criminal and civil, right? Criminally speaking, the people that helped facilitate just became an accomplice to aggravated stalking or kidnapping because that right. ends up turning to, if he doesn't have a right to take the kids, well, now he just kidnapped children, right? right? So they just became an accomplice to that. So you're talking criminal charges can be placed on the staff. You look at it civilly speaking, if an individual wants to go that route, um, there's a, you, you can sue them for violating that and not listening to the law where it becomes more of a monetarily reimbursement type thing where you're seeking damages for them violating the law as well. So there's always like two avenues you can go with your criminally or civilly. Um, and depending on the organization, civilly might be more effective. That might be more harming and damaging because that very well might get more, PR that might get more negative PR out there, more press about what's happening because that could cause financial damages to the organization. So you're talking, you know, a six figure, seven figure settlement, well, that could be a huge hit to an organization like that. And then the PR fallout after that. So right. definitely something to consider as that happens. I've spoken with a couple lawyers since starting the show and a lot of them involved in a case like this. And one of the things that they've encouraged me to do with the show is just like broadcast that this is going on because whatever legal outcome there is, which every legal case has its own. I mean, it could be years before you see some kind of final decision made. And at that point it's out of people's minds. Um, just keeping a public awareness of, Hey, this is what's going on. This is my story. And I think people, coming on and sharing their story, it plays a huge role in like seeing action happen. Like we just saw, um, just for context, there was a, there was a religious boarding school, um, in Indiana that's been operating, has had accusations of abuse for several, several years, like lots and lots of problems through there. And they just shut down this year. Um, they lost their insurance and I, I mean, no one knows the exact reasoning, but, 
I know that the son of the founder came out and was speaking out publicly. There was a Dr. Phil special about it. I've hit it on the show. Like that was one of the most downloaded episodes of the show. Uh, there's been just a ton of public information revealed about what's been going on at the school. And I think like, I don't know that it's completely solely responsible for that, but I think that you'd absolutely have to say like, Oh, all of that played a factor in when you're reviewing a case for insurance or for, you know, whatever part of the school or organization, whatever that needs, they're going to look at that stuff and be like, Oh, something's going on here that we don't feel comfortable endorsing. So um, I think the PR thing is really important. Yeah. I was going to say to that effect, you know, what you're doing, it's very similar to what we're doing with domestic violence and surviving to thriving. You know, if, if nobody's talking about it, then it's never going to change. Right. right. So I applaud the mission that you're on because you're bringing it to the forefront. And from anything I've seen or heard in the discussions we've had about it, nobody else is doing that because there are so many people are afraid of the repercussions that come from it, but it's just like standing up to that bully in high school. Right. right. They're going to keep being a bully until somebody stands up and shows them that's not going to be tolerated anymore. Right. So right. the fact that you're having the conversations, I think is so empowering to so many people um, so keep up that, even though there are those legal repercussions that, you know, right. we've talked about a little bit, but at the end of the day, you know, this is the right thing to do because, you know, Susan G. Komen became huge because they brought breast cancer to the forefront, right? right? It's no different than what we're doing with domestic violence or what you're doing with abuse in those circles where you bring it to the forefront, then people know about it in order to care about it. And I think it's just a great cause. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.